This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And joining us tonight is our resident uh, local true crime expert, well, maybe not expert, but fanatic, Sarah Duncan. Hi. Yet. So have either of you watched this movie before? No. Um, I, this may have been one of those that was vaguely familiar in the beginning, and I don't remember the end at all, so this may have been one of those movies that we have on, on Friday nights, and I end up falling asleep. Um, although I do have some question whether I would watch this movie with your mother, who gets scared over uh, Lassie movies um, at times, so... Um, but she loves all that true crime stuff that goes on, like the Discovery Channel and all the other. She pieces. watches Mindhunter with me, where they're I interviewing know. serial killers. I know, she but I remember a murderer. I remembered in the Line of Fire when, uh, with uh, Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich, and she was so freaked out by John Malkovich, she had trouble sleeping for a week. We watched a documentary on Ted Bundy. Uh, I'm just telling you what I did. I still could never get her to watch either Silence of the Lambs or um, Psycho. Silence of the Lambs um, is a little bit different because there are true horror elements to it. And that's our um, lead in for next week um, because that's uh, our follow up to this episode. But. Um, I know both of you recognize I ne- I'm one of the people that does not care for true crime. It does not appeal to me. I never watched Making a Murderer. I've never watched any of the other like stuff. I'm not a CSI guy. Um, so none of this particularly appeals to me because it's just it's not the space I want my brain to inhabit. But uh, I recognize that it is probably... 80% of podcasts made right now are true crime. I mean, like, there's a lot of shit going on out in the world, and um, I, I don't think this invented it, but it certainly gave us, uh, at least for Hollywood, um, a branch to move forward into this type of work and um, maybe set off the, the newest decade of trying to do this, although it kind of got reinvented along the lines when we started doing more true crime documentaries and then serial, the podcast kind of helped it take off. So, but this came before that. So we'll get into that tonight. So, uh, for background on the movie, uh, basic plot summary, as always in the late 1960s and seventies, uh, fear grips the city of San Francisco as a serial killer called Zodiac stalks its residents. Investigators, played by Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, and reporters, Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr., become obsessed with learning the killer's identity and bringing him to justice. Meanwhile, Zodiac claims victim after victim and taunts the authorities with cryptic messages, ciphers, and menacing phone calls. Um, This movie was not uh, acclaimed at the time. It was not the... It got outperformed at the box office by a movie called Wild Hogs, which, in retrospect, is... Um, sad, to say the least, and then um, subsequently got decimated the following week when 300 came out, 
which is the to date only successful Zack Snyder movie. Um, that's both critically acclaimed as well as like box office wise. That's what I mean, because you know box office wise he's done okay with Man of Steel and um, Dawn of Justice and some of those other ones. So, um, but it was on a lot of people's top ten lists of that year. Um, it notably did not get a single Academy nomination and was not on the AFI recognition list for that year. Um, so this leads to the inevitable question that we always get into. What is this movie about? Go ahead. Well, um, I find the point that we enter this story to be very unique um, in that we enter it right at before the uh, second murder. Um, we don't, we, we basically completely forget about the original two murders of um, two individuals by the names Jensen and Faraday in the late uh, part of 1968. And this is a time in which the term serial killer in the United States is still not really defined. It's not something that to the extent as we know it now, is a commonplace idea. And so, I mean, this is a month before um, the Manson murders in 69. The, this, that's when the second murder takes place. I mean, it was a time where something like this was completely unheard of. Um, well, only to the extent that um, Ed Gein didn't terrorize people in parked cars and in urban areas, but... I mean, there's a serial killer in and of itself. He only um, murdered two people. He's not classified as a serial killer because he dug up the others. Not to mention, Ed Gein never made international news. Oh, baloney. Yes. He didn't make international news. The, the, the In town, when the trial was going on, after he uh, recovered and was found sane enough to stand trial, the uh, Judge Fink from Wisconsin Rapids held court because they moved the trial out of Watoma county and moved it into wisconsin rapids into wood county judge fink gave a press conference every morning about the trial and the new york times the washington post the ap the um net or national public radio all were there that was not to mention that 60s not not to mention famously that the movie psycho is based on ed keen well, he, he also had several others based off of him, including Leatherface. Yes, but you're forgetting Ed Gein was, did his murders in the 50s, but he was found incompetent and unable to stay in trial. And so he was sent to Mendota Mental Hospital, was later declared sane enough to stand trial. And then they tried him for the crimes about 10 years later. So, uh, Dad, what is this movie about? This movie is about, um, in, in a short, it's about people's fascinations with the fear associated with it. And it also is in a more basis limit, the same concept of watching uh, people not being able to turn away from a train wreck or a car accident. Um, that's what you're seeing here. It's people who like the thought of being scared, why people go to horror movies. That's what this is about, only it really happened, and there's a certain element of fascination. It's like a detective story with a horror background wrapped around it. Which I find interesting that they 
that you say something like that because as far as classifications go with killers, he is classified as what is known as a thrill killer, someone who lives off of and thrives off of inspiring fear. So even when he stopped murdering people, which we see, you know, at the end of 1969, he continued to send letters to, you know, enthrall and uh, strike fear into the police and the citizens. Well, we don't know whether or not he stopped. He just stopped taking credit for a lot of things. And They've never the formally of, linked I, it. Well, to be fair, I also, other than the one murder where um, he directly gave evidence through his letter as to what was going on, which is a notable part of the film, we never truly link that any of these particular murders are him other than... He, that one because he's just simply taking credit for things and we've already disproved that he took credit for things that were not his so the four have been linked for multiple reasons though um he would call the victim's families with the heavy breathing which is mentioned in the movie and um he also would um oh what is Mm. He um, would call in to the police and confess. On all four occasions, he called the police. It might have been a couple hours later, but he would call into the police department and actually confess, you know, this is where, you know, I committed a double murder. Which they did show in the film. They had some of the tapes or whatever it is or a recreation of it, um, giving at least pointing to it. But Again, that could be something else. I don't think that you can definitely say, at best, it's, again, like everything else in this movie, circumstantial. There's no hard evidence of almost anything that happened in this. So, It's a little odd from uh, a point of view, because I've had to study enough about violent crime, because my previous life I was a defense attorney, um, that the the tactics used or the modes of, of murder were so different from time or from one victim to the next. Usually the serial killer utilizes the same process and it's not in this case. It's so it's so weird, but whatever. Well, ultimately I think this is, if there's one thing you can say from a behaviorist standpoint um, is that it's somebody that's, um, not trained in any type of regular um, military grade or physical violence or had any type of like perfect, I get dare say professional um, training toward being in that situation. I mean, he's probably incapable or um, with the, the fact that he let two victims live, um, this is not a polished murderer who, like, is an executioner or a hitman or anything like that. I mean, these seem to be the quote-unquote crimes of passion, but um, in a more, more serialized version. So, um, as far as what I thought this was about, it's a compulsive serial killer hunter thriller. It's true crime Hollywood style. I mean, we look at all of the things, and I've kind of uh, lightly glossed over it already in this 
uh, beginning part, but um, essentially for all of the true crime stuff we had, and I, I know people tribute um, murder and serial and those things as being the kickoff towards this current age of um, true crime, like just overload. Um, we, uh, you know, this is not like those exactly because this is somewhat fictionalized. Um, all of the scenes of what happened are imaginations of what may or may not have been the dialogue or the conversation or any of the other things that happened. I do think it is notable that the two uh, surviving victim members um, that are depicted in the movie were actually consultants on the film. So um, that has probably some of the closest ability. And they did do a significant amount of research, at least if you just kind of gradually pass by on doing a lot with the police reports, doing a ton of interviews and other things that you would normally associate in the current um, age as far as um, how to go about putting one of these together in a narrative form. But um, they tr still tried to gloss it up and give it a central narrative told over the case of uh, several years instead of kind of doing it a documentary style. Which, honestly, you probably could have done it documentary style um, given that this is um, kind of after the debut of The Office and we kind of get that. Um, and, and obviously those are two very, very different genres and mediums, but you get documentary type style as far as fiction in a lot of other different ways. So it's not that they couldn't have done it, it's just that they didn't. So, um, all right. We'll jump into the um, categories that we do every week. Uh, best performance for you, Sarah. I would have to say Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, I feel like uh, while watching the film at several times, I, f I couldn't distinguish him as an actor from the character. I felt like he did a fantastic job of kind of disappearing into the character itself. <clears throat> and watching kind of him descend into this heavy idea of somebody who becomes obsessed with, you know, be, having to find the truth, it, it, you can watch it take a toll on him, and I think he does a very good job of portraying that. All right, Dad, your best performer? Um, <clears throat> I like Hall, but I, I guess... I'll will go off the main or the the beaten path and say Robert Downey, um, because he was able to portray um, a broken man who became more broken as a result of um, the stress associated with this and the failures associated with this. So I forgot to do a, a basic. Um research look if i remember right so this is the move this is from 2007 and um he obviously struck it big and had his career resurgence when he hit iron man a year later so um it's hard to say exactly where if this is the movie that he uh more or less came back to uh no good night and good I'm luck was his first movie outside of rita Hebb. 
even that I'm not sure because he has stuff from pretty much every year. So, but that when it was a controversial thing that Downey got cast in Good Night and Good Luck, it was a or the studio was or was uh, against it, and it required um, uh, George Clooney to demand him to be in that film because of the, his background and his multiple failures on probation and uh, in rehab. Okay. So I guess my timing is a little bit off on that one. Um, but even so, this is kind of uh, that tweener period before he really, um, I mean, you would put him on a short list of most notable or recognizable actors right now. Um, it would be hard to think of too many other people that are probably um, higher grossing or more recognizable uh, due to Iron Man and the Avengers. So um, so I'm going to disagree with both of you just, uh, you know, as far as the Jake Gyllenhaal period. I actually thought the uh, whenever he was on screen was the parts that I liked the least. Um, he... His particular character and the whole Robert Graysmith storyline is background to me. All of the best parts of this movie are when the cops are doing their job or when you have the murder scenes or any of the other pieces of this. And he is almost completely uninvolved other than as a bystander until the last portion of the film. And by that point, like it starts to drag as far as I'm concerned. So um, I'm going to go in a completely different direction. And uh, um, we have not done this very often. Normally we nominate people that are, you know, stars of the movie or actors or whatever else. But this is David Fincher's movie. Um, This is probably his second or third best film. Um His first one he probably should have won Best Director for, if not uh, additionally Best Picture that year. It's still kind of a controversial one um, as to how that went about. But um, ultimately, this whole thriller-esque style uh, translated to how he did later films in these narrative styles. So you can definitely see his stylistic in The Social Network. You can see it in um, Gone Girl. And then finally, when he moved over to TV and started doing things like Mind Hunters as a producer or um, started doing um, the uh, now controversial um, House of Cards and really built those types of thriller-esque shows. And you can see kind of the seeds of that. Obviously, he'd done previous movies before this. But he's a guy that is has been passed over in Hollywood as like one of the serious or better directors. And frankly, he's probably one of the best thriller directors we still currently have. So uh, ultimately, I think this is his movie. He gets my uh, nod as the best performer. All right. So best minor performance. Uh, Dad, who did you have down? Mark Ruffalo. Okay. Any particular reason? 
Um, it's, it's the same reason I'm going to give because I also found him the most charismatic, which is going to be in the next category. So um, I, I just thought he had a presence on the screen whenever he was on. He looked like a guy that was really conflicted by his failure to solve the crime. And he just came across as somebody that was both or that was sympathetic uh, and yet um, not necessarily the most likable. He just seemed to be kind of, I don't know how to put it exactly. There was a certain element of being, you know, you had to hold him at arm's length. You could empathize with his plight, but you knew you needed to stay arm's length away. And to me, that just that was a very decent uh, level of acting. Okay, Sarah? I actually had Robert Downey Jr. for this. I also liked um, how his character was portrayed. I mean, he did a fantastic job of um, playing this idea of an unheroic almost hero in you know the fact that he wasn't willing to quit badgering the system or keep going to try to find leads where the police might not have been looking and for it he's singled out as you know this um as this figure that is being chased by the Zodiac. And so you can see the stress that that's taking on him throughout his entire character and in the way he portrays that. And I think part of why he does a good job playing this role is his own background experience. I think that very much played into, you know, him being able to portray this, you know, alcoholic um, who just hates the world anymore. Well, ultimately, this is where I'll disagree. I didn't find him to be heroic at all. Most of his stuff seemed to be uh, poking at the police in ways that was unnecessary and trying to drive a storyline that ultimately panned out to be uh, nothing. Um, That whole sequence of him going down to Riverside and trying to stir up additional through lines obviously had nothing to um, go on, and the police had uh, no connection. He just kind of made that association on his own. Um, What I will say is, is to a certain extent, at least the way it's played, the way it was written, that his character seems like an additional villain, or not villain, um, victim of this whole scenario, that ultimately he just spirals out of control once he gets death threats. Um for being one of the more notable figures on the case. So, uh, ultimately, I, I applaud his performance because I think he did do well with what he was given. Um, I ultimately went in a different direction. Um, I'm going to do an off-beaten one. Anthony Edwards. <laughs> so, okay. so, I mean, it's a guy who's popped up around the place forever. He was in Top Gun, he was in Revenge of the Nerds, he was in ER, he's in this, and he's always that sidekick figure that's the stabilizing force. He's never going to outshine anybody, but he certainly um, is always in a, a true supportive actor, and he always allows you the ability or the freedom to um, be the lead while not overtaking you and yet add something to every character he's a part of at 
least from what I can see. He's the definition of supporting actor. So that's who I went with. All right, Dan. And you already gave your most charismatic as Mark Ruffalo. Sarah, who was your most charismatic? Ooh. I would actually agree with that. Mark Ruffalo did a fantastic job of just playing portraying this character who, you know, he you could you could tell through just everything that he did, whether it was his movements on screen or the way he would stress certain words that, you know, this was taking its toll on him. And I think he did a brilliant job of showing that in the film. So I'm going to do something I've never done yet on the podcast. I'm going to punt. I don't think anybody in this movie was deserving of being named charismatic. Um, almost nobody was like a likable character, and it was a true ensemble movie for the majority of it. So there wasn't any one particular person that had a lot of work to shine. And the most, or I, additionally, with how Fincher um, made this movie, it wasn't supposed to focus on any one particular character, nor one particular police department, or any one publication. So ultimately, you have a hodgepodge of ensemble characters, played by good actors who did a decent job, but where nobody really rises um, forward or does anything else. Bless you, Dad. Uh, and ultimately, I just didn't think anybody was particularly charismatic. I'll so. give an honorable mention to Brian Cox. Yeah, I mean, that's a guy who, he's a that guy up until he did Succession recently, which I know both of you haven't watched, um, but is a, is a really good show to catch up on, even if uh, season three is going to be delayed now, uh, moving forward with uh, everything that's going on in COVID land. So, all right. Um, I don't know if any of you have um, specific uh, stuff down, but I have about seven or eight uh, different scenes to nominate for best scene. You can add any that I missed, and then we can kind of go through these. So um, just add anything you'd like, anything uh, that you liked or didn't like or um, agree, disagree about any of these particular ones as I kind of go through them. So my first one is uh, each, and I know it's three different scenes, but each of the murder scenes. So those are the most gripping of any of the pieces in this movie, and it's ultimately I co-nominated all three of them as the most indelible moments of the movie because it's the reenactment as best as they could make it of three grisly murders. The rest of it is just kind of like treading on everything that happened during that. And uh, as far as it goes, it's, it's the part you draw from the most in order to get that aura moving forward of this guy being, um, I don't know, haunting for the rest of the city. So, uh, number two, I had um, Robert Graysmith's first encounter with the cipher, where he first gets it at the paper, starts looking it over, is just infatuated by it, keeps turning it over and turning it over and trying to figure it out. 
ultimately he gives it up and then uh, a couple um, puts it in. But it's also the work he does immediately after that with the substitution code and trying to explain all of these different little pieces and him going to the library and all of those pieces. I thought that sequence kind of worked um, as far it was probably the best sequence with Jake Gyllenhaal where it didn't seem like he was devolving into a madness. Um, number three. Um, so the uh, Chronicle finding the bloody shirt piece, the woman screaming, and, you know, that whole uh, piece of it, because it was the one scene where um, really the, as far as the notes and the letters it took it to a different level that he provided specific evidence in his notes to link him to the murders. So, um, I, I just thought that that depiction of it and that furthering of it, um, just takes it to a different scale. Um, I'm going to put this one in because it's the weirdest scene of the movie. And uh, again, I don't know where the two dogs were over the weekend while we were watching this at the house, but um, the squirrels in Arthur Allen's trailer. I mean, there are just squirrels all over the place, and um, it, it's such an awkward thing that there were, like, there's one in a cage that looks like it's trying to be a gerbil, and then there are ones in the back bedroom and all of this other stuff, and it just, it was weird. So I just put that one in there for the sake of talking about how weird it was, frankly. Well, so um, that's not unusual as far as serial killers. Animal torture is like one of the signs. So I just, wild caught squirrels are a little weird. Even at that, most people, or mo uh, most serial killers go after like domesticated animals. Even so, I, it's not that like I wasn't expecting it or that, I can't make a correlation. Uh, it's just, it was odd. It wasn't something I necessarily thought of until it happened. So, anyway. Our, uh, number it was unusual, but it wasn't like he made little uniforms for them. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, number five, I had the Dirty Harry screening. Just because, um, <laughs> while I think that may have been a little bit of a fictionalization piece, um, it, it's striking to me that I didn't make that association until seeing this movie. And then once you see it, it's like unmistakable that that's, that's somehow connected. And they show the specific scene where they're reading the Scorpio letter and all of the other loosely based things. And the fact that the counterculture movie and the anti-hero of Dirty Harry is basically created to um, make the city safer by doing the thing the cops can't. And that's killing the bad guy. Yes. So, um, then I had the first interview of Arthur Allen just because of how weird the sequencing is and... You know, can I see your watch and answering all of those weird questions. And it, it was just a good cross-examination scene between the, the four actors just sitting around that table. And you could kind of feel the tense um, nature of it. It, it. I thought they all four did a really good job. But Fincher really building that um, scene to try and um, kind of put the 
metaphorical noose around that guy's neck a little bit. I mean, he kind of is leading with um, where he thinks this is going. I I don't know. I've never read Zodiac the book. Um, I would assume that the the conclusion of it is is that Alan is the most likely subject or suspect. And I know that he's the only um, open suspect that they have for Vallejo, but uh, or as told in the epilogue. But still, uh, just kind of the way that they depict that particular sequence going, uh, I thought was good. And then finally. Um, this might be one of my favorite scenes just because of how it took place, but uh, maybe an honorable mention or something. The Aqua Velva cocktails. How, how many times have you seen some weird guy <laughs> go into a bar and order a colored fruity drink, and then you're asking him what it is? Very rarely does somebody say, well, if you knew it or if you had tried it, you, would, or, uh, you wouldn't be making fun of it. And then he does, and they get absolutely hammered on them. So it it's one of those where you see it in a movie and you kind of want to try it. So I might look that up here in the near future and see what it was. So a, did you guys I have? Friend, I had a friend who um, um, did that and it was it was similar and it was vodka, blue curacao, blue uh, curacao, and um, I'm trying to think what the other ingredient was, but yeah. So. Anyway. Okay. Well, again, I'll probably just look it up for my own sake for um, the additive, but did either of you have any other nominees you'd like to throw in the hat? No, but the the scene that you mentioned, the second to last one, the one with Ruffalo interviewing... Um, John Carroll's character? Yeah, the, the where he's, you know, can I see your watch? You know, I've been in those interviews before with clients and that's what sold me on Ruffalo because he presented himself the way a cop does uh, in those situations. It's not, you know, full, you know, full on guns a blazing trying to get to the truth. It's cat and mouse, you know, just dance up to the line and kind of tickle a little bit and see what happens and then back off and keep doing that. Um, I've been in one interrogation involving a homicide and uh, two involving a drug ring. So I've sat in on those. And so that to me is by far the scene that uh, sold me on Ruffalo and really came the closest, I thought, to being clo- or realistic as far as police work. Okay. I do actually have one to add. I, the scene in which um, Robert Downey Jr. gets the Halloween card. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I thought that that was very well done, um, specifically by Downey, in, in kind of just his freak out in that moment. I mean, I'm, granted, you're literally getting a piece of bloody shirt off a murdered victim and you know but the card itself is just kind of odd in in what it says i can't remember exactly what the card itself said but it was just very unique to for him to be sending not only um 
the the piece of cloth or, or some kind of letter, but to actually send a card and say Happy Halloween is just struck me as unusual. Okay. Um, so with that, uh, Dad, what did you have for your best scene then? Um, I, the scene that I just mentioned, I think that was the scene that really presented the police and put, portrayed it as really, um, I mean, raw. I, I, I still sit remember the whole con or situation like 1990. Um, my client's telling me that um, he met with his uh, sister's boyfriend and he asked him to ride along and then proceeds to tell me where they uh, uh, hit all the evidence of uh, a murder he had committed, this, uh, this boyfriend of his sister's had committed. And then sitting in on the um, uh, interrogation of the police with my client, you know, first they were not even going to willing to talk to me until I said, you know, they said, well, I, you know, we don't believe that your client has. And I said, oh, he's got some charges. He's willing to cooperate, but he needs to have some level of, you know, some sort of a deal out of this as a result of his cooperation. They said, well, how do we know you're believable? I said, well, the victim's wallet's in a, um, in a sewer next to uh, the our West Grand Pharmacy in the Five Points on the west side of Beloit. <clears throat> and the police went there and found it, and then they called me back and said, we'll meet. And then sitting around that room and watching that. So to me, that that was a scene that was extremely raw and realistic to the way things generally were with police. Okay. Uh, Sarah, did you have a different one or the same one? Yeah, um, I actually really enjoyed the scene with Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal where they're working on the leftovers of the cipher is because um you kind of get to see the way his mind's working trying to put together all of the puzzle pieces and um that's kind of one of the first moments where you're going to get to see some of that later um part of the movie in which you know you you're finally putting together the pieces of evidence um that you're being shown at multiple areas in the movie into one big thing that shows you the entire case and um i i also i'm just a fan of the the psychology of sitting down and actually doing stuff like that code breaking is not an easy task and to watch somebody be able to sit there and just do that offhand like that which um i've actually read the guy who he's portraying um graysmith actually could do that and did um at several moments do stuff like that and i was I thought it was a very good scene. Um, it was very well written, and the banter between Gyllenhaal and Downey was very well done. Okay. Actually, that was my vote for best scene. So um, for need of uh, repeating myself, I, I just thought it was the one that probably worked the best as far as continuing the whole thriller line early on. Um, so uh, a favorite scene, I'll just renominate my aqua velva cocktails just because um you know when they're early on in those stages where um they're first starting to pursue this and the case hasn't become cold and the rest of it it's when the movie probably works the best for me so 
any of you favorite scene? Do either of you even know what Aqua Velva was? Because I don't know if you can Isn't get it. Like an aftershave? Yes. It was one of the, I mean, back in that time frame, there were only so many aftershaves you could get. There were three basic ones, Old Spice, Aqua Velva, and High Karate. I haven't even heard of the third. So, Well, it's not been in existence for a long time, which is why companies such as Avon got into the aftershave market, because there was a dearth of uh, quality smells. Most of that stuff smelled like like some, they, they like injected some scent into turpentine. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I, I haven't smelled aqua velva, but I don't care for Old Spice, so I can only imagine. So, uh, all right. One uh, of the better smelling ones. That, that's saying something. Uh, all right, so most indelible moment. Uh, I've already mentioned, I just thought that the murder scenes are the ones that stick out the most. Because, again, they're the ones that set the tone. You have each part of this, you know, the even the hijacking car scene, which may or may not be attributed to um, the Zodiac or not. I, you know, it's hard to say. But, um, you know, the, the murder in the park the murder of the cab driver, um, and then the murder that leads off the whole thing. You know, each one of those four scenes kind of gives you this unnerve for the rest of the uh, movie and um, kind of gives you that whole thriller-esque um, piece going forward. Um, so either of you most indelible moment? I would go with um, the first murders, um, that entire, the way that they filmed that, um, just going through the the crime scene like that. I thought that it was very well done in the way that they that was completely mapped out. And um, I mean, you were missing uh, Mike um, because he was in the emergency room. Um, and, but the way that they spread that, because the scene, his crime scene itself was actually very spread out. And so it gave them the chance to pan through the whole thing in one solid movement. And I really thought that was very, uh, gripping way to show the entire scene and to introduce us to the, you know, the characters that we were going to, you know, come to know throughout the movie. For yeah. me, it was the scene where Jillian Hall comes home and finds the wife, the note from his wife, that she's left him with the kids. Because that just said there were other victims other than those who were murdered or, or physically harmed. Yeah, and I think you get that for a lot of them. I already mentioned uh, Downey's character in, uh, what was it, Paul Allen? the name i think yeah. um but um you know and obviously dave tashi uh goes through that whole scenario where they thought he had written one of the letters and uh so ultimately all of these people kind of flame out um in one degree or another and um 
have issues as far as that goes. So, all right. Um, that's a good place to just uh, cut for a second. So uh, we will be back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. And welcome back. All right, so we left off at uh, Best Lines. Um, I have a few different nominees. If you have any more to add in, let me know. Um, after we go through them. Um, number one, Robert Graysmith. I, I need to know who he is. I, I need to stand there. I need to look him in the eye. I need to know that it's him. Okay. It, it's basically the crux or the uh, um, compulsion line that drives everybody in the movie to a certain extent. That they feel the need to unmask this guy and that it's an obsession. So, uh, number two, Robert Graysmith, just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. Dave Tashi, easy, dirty, Harry. Uh, number three, Dave Tashi. Hey, how do we know that this lead is real? Inspector William Armstrong. It's very real. How do I know? Because I saw it on TV. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for being a kind of a um, this thriller-esque true crime type of movie, I, I didn't think when I started looking into it that there'd be a lot of good quippy lines, but then I started remembering all of these as I was going through them, and um, there, there are quite a few. So um, number four... Uh, Avery's on two. Dave Tashi, tell him to Inspector Armstrong. You want me to communicate that verbatim, or can I spice it up a little? Hmm. Uh, and then finally, my nominee for funniest line, Paul Avery. What do you do for fun? Robert Graysmith. Uh, I love to read. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy books. Those are the same things. That's the funniest line to you? Yes. Okay. Because when asked what he likes to do, the best he could do is start to repeat himself. He had one thing. (laughs) As a guy who has nothing but endless hobbies, it it tickles me. So what do you want? Anyway, uh, any other ones you wanted to add? No, I really don't. I've been I, I'm just searching back through things again myself. Um, I don't have anything that really 
stood out. I liked the one where Robert Downey or uh, Jillian Hall is in Robert Downey Jr.'s house, um, and it's the last time we see Downey, and he uh, starts to ask Jillian Hall if he'd like a drink, and has to um, say, "Well, I don't have anything blue for you, but will this do?" It's a nice nod back to the Aqua Velva scene. I, I laughed so. Speaking of cocktails, we can hear somebody else's in the background. The ice clinking on your dad juice. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Just reenacting the scene from uh, uh, Bridge of Lies, where uh, Tom Hanks is telling the East German operative that he's still thirsty. Dad, you didn't even get the name of the movie right. It's Bridge of Spies. Oh, okay, Bridge of Spies. All right, whatever. <laughs> oh. Okay. okay. <laughs> By the way, right. Aqua Velva is uh, one shot of vodka, one shot of gin, one shot of blue curacao, and curacao. Curacao. I've heard pronounced both ways. And uh, and then the, you fill the drink up with uh, Seven Up. Oh, okay. Well, that, uh, Here that sounds like a weird cross between. Uh... Yes, okay. it is. Anyway, uh, join us next week for a cocktail hour. <laughs> uh, which ones do you guys have as best line? Oh, I actually have the one about, um, of course, this, uh, the lead is true. I saw it on TV. Yeah, <clears throat> that's about as good as any, I'd say. Uh, to me, and you, you know my predilection towards um, summation lines or the one that like kind of gets the essence of the movie um ultimately it's the first one for me i need to know who he is i need to stand there i need to look him in the eye and know that it's him um just because that that gives you the impact of all of those particular pieces so all right so uh did either of you have a nominee for funniest line not really i mean i this is, again, one of these situations where the, the story is, you almost feel, you know, um, guilty for finding something funny in a movie like this. Well, like I said, I think there's a couple of, like, sarcastic or quippy lines that um, actually are okay for that, but um, that's why I put down the one thing, because it was, it was a... Oasis in a sea of um, depression. So, well, I think just to make a comment on what you said of feeling guilty for finding anything in this funny, I think that's part of just the way you look at stuff like this. It's because you've always told me that when I laugh while watching an episode of Criminal Minds, that there's something wrong with me. No. I've, I've lived through this. By the way, nice job of mixing metaphors. A, an oasis in, or a sea or an oasis in the sea. 
The listeners at home knew what I meant. Yes, I know. And they're all probably going, yeah, he's right. It was a mixed metaphor. It was really bad. <laughs> yeah, because the the people that are most fluent with this podcast probably know me very well and just love the chance to rub it in. So thanks for that. Yeah, all right. If only you could get it rubbed in more often. <laughs> That's a double in time. You can read into that however you'd like. <laughs> Light euphemism, to borrow a phrase from the uh, movie. So, anyway, all right. We'll get down to the brass tacks and uh, score the movie here. So, first category up, legacy. And we will cut to you, Dad. Okay, I think you're going to have a much higher legacy score than I do because um, you, you think this is tied to all the podcasts, as you've said earlier in the thing. I don't think so at all. I think this is this is just one of uh, multiple aberrations because I remember watching uh, Helter Skelter based on Vincent Bugliaghi, or, uh, Bugliasi's book from the um, uh, Manson murders. And so there have been other films that have been similarly based on real killers throughout the years, and it didn't start a trend. I think it all climaxed this whole modern thing around this fascination with um, with forensic science, DNA, all of that. And that's what started this. So I think from a legacy standpoint, I give it a five. I would actually go um, a bit higher. I'm going to argue probably a seven to a seven and a half. Um, purely based on the fact of, yes, you're right, that this didn't necessarily spur a movement. But there, as somebody who studies serial killers or even serial killer psychology um, just at a base, there are several names that you just can't get away from and several killers that you just, no matter what podcast what anything that you're focusing on the zodiac will always be one of them because it is unsolved it is one of the biggest unsolved crimes and so everybody knows it and so um having a movie like this based around it i'd gotta give it a seven at least well i to be fair i will give it credit that this is a long string in the line of things we've been doing it's more of this is it's it's not necessarily um because we had shows like csi multiple times over before this um ncis has been around longer than this movie was um and uh, we had law and order and all of these other you know procedural dramas and the rest of this I, the one place i would say from a legacy standpoint that um this is is it's one of those true crime serial killer um, thrillers where like CSI was fictional and cold case was fictional and some of these other things where at least, you know, if they were borrowing, they were borrowing to fictionalize it, not take it and try and uh, base it around a, a true story or a, a narrative in that. So while, while I would agree that maybe that's placing a little too much strength, uh, I ultimately had a seven for this and it's kind of on the backing of there's an undercurrent of, directors and critics and other people that have this a lot higher on their overall list. I know I saw 
last year's uh, best director, and you can kind of see um, some through lines between Fincher's work and um, some of the thrillers that he's made. But Bong Joon Ho had this in his personal top ten of movies. Now I don't. Um, you know, I think there were places, like I said, the the part of the movie that works well is up until like Jake Gyllenhaal's character becomes the front uh, part of the movie. But so that like the last maybe hour kind of drags for me, but uh, the first hour and a half or so it really works. So as far as that goes, I gave it a, that seven. So we'll bear it out and average it out to a 6.3. But um, I, I do think this one has uh, a higher legacy than um, was given for at the time, which is why I went with a four and a half for impact significance. Because at the time, like I said, it got beat out by a really bad John Travolta comedy. Like, this wasn't, like, a highly grossing movie. It um, wasn't something just, that, like... Just, just a second. Just a second. Yes, being, I know. That's redundant. It's redundant. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're talking about John Travolta's performance on, on the uh, O.J. Simpson movie, because... Okay, but that's where I'm going to draw the line. So, uh, really bad John Travolta comedy is not redundant. Really bad John Travolta movie is redundant. Which is why that one aberration of him hitting it well, where he actually worked with somebody that was good in uh, doing Pulp Fiction, for whatever reason, it works. But that's like the only time he's ever been good at anything. So, well, I don't know. Okay. He played a really good sweat hog on Welcome Back, Cotter. I feel Thanks like I shouldn't one, say anything because I actually like Grease. Well, okay, that's fine, I guess. But all right, whatever. Anyway, anyway so I gave it a four and a half for impact significance, as I was trying to say before. But, you know, this was not high at the box office. It was not recognized at the time. It wasn't given a lot of credence, if anything. And again, like the true crime era didn't happen for several years. But I do think that this movie is kind of one of those small cult followings where if you've seen the movie, like there is an audience for it yet. uh, And that there are people that enjoy this type of movie, but maybe it just didn't have it at the time. So I have to kind of downgrade it a little bit on that one. Uh, Again, it was given some of the in- in the moment top 10 list but like if you're not even making the afi's top 10 that year and they have movies like that i've never even heard of that year let alone something like knocked up beat you out uh and being one of the 10 best movies of that year um i can't really put you above a five so either of you impact significance uh three I didn't even know, remember or know what the hell you were talking about when you told me we were doing this film. Um, I'm like, I don't remember it. I don't know what you're talking about. I had to look up what it was. So, and I am what I would consider at least to some extent knowledgeable on film. And if I don't remember it, okay. I'd also go with the three as... Um, I do a lot of, like we said earlier, true crime podcasts. I listen to Serial. I listen to several um, true crime 
uh, podcast through Parcast Network, and I have never heard mention of this movie once. They make mention of other films that are related to serial killers, Leatherface um, being one of them, <clears throat> um, m- many others. I've never heard mention of this movie. And so I, I'd never heard of this at all um, until I was asked to participate this week. So, All right. Um, Dad, what did you have for novelty? By the way, that averages out to three and a half on impact significance. I had novelty about a five. Okay. I've considered it run-of-the-mill and or about middle of the road because, like I said, I remember as a kid, and I mean, you have to stop and think. When I was a kid, we didn't have HBO. We didn't have on-demand. So we didn't see a film at the theaters. You had to wait. And every network had its movie of the night week. So a lot of times it was Saturday night. Sometimes it was Friday night. Sometimes it was Sunday night, whatever. And so I remember watching Helter Skelter on like the ABC uh, movie of the week on like a Tuesday night type of thing and was really, you know, scared. Uh, I must have been eight, nine scared because I, of course, never heard of the Mansons until I saw this film. So to me, that's the one that has the indelible moment. And um, so that's the one that has the impact. So that's why I just don't think this is anything. It was a well-done film, but I don't think it had any special significance from other films. Sarah? Well, I'd go a little bit higher. I'd go with a six, just based on um, the fact that, yes, this has been done before, but it takes on a new idea of you're not focusing on the killer themselves. You're focusing on the people that were investigating him and you're not necessarily trying to deep dive into his thought process or anything like that, which is, which is unique in itself because so many people, um, their mission is when studying true crime is to understand the motive or like the person behind it. And this was more about, this is what happened and how we got to the point of um, of trying to figure out who this is. Is you know this is the timeline that we all progressed through, and um, I I never seen one quite like that. Um, so I I would put it at a six. I had six and a half, and I think for many of the reasons I've previously stated, but. Um, I just, this is a little bit different than what they had been doing, and I think um, gave a little bit more credence to that you could do one of these stories well. Obviously, it's been, um, they, they're doing it in a different style at this point um, for most of these, where we're just having a new documentary series on a true crime thing just about every week on HBO or Netflix or whatever. Uh, pop up but uh yeah so i i just I, I think that it's there but it's not like it's a huge novel concept they're not like remaking the wheel or anything else it was just uh at least a little bit different and daring so i i gave it a little bit of a higher mark on that one um all right classicness 
Um, this is probably our most difficult category to usually define. Oh, by the way, and, and I keep forgetting to put this in here, but so the, the three averages between us for novelty came out to 5.8. But uh, so classicness, this is the hardest one usually to define because, you know, it, we, we typically say whether or not something is aged well, whether there are pieces of this, and usually in a period piece film, um, with the exception of last week's uh, discussion on the help, where obviously that has not aged well, uh, but that that one was a fictionalized era piece instead of trying to and presenting it through a very specific lens. Um, this one, I don't think there's anything particularly that they conveyed or that they did or um, piece of the story that hasn't aged well. In fact, I would say the opposite. The one thing is, is I don't think I can give it full marks necessarily um, on that, like, it got certain pieces right or it was predictive, which is another layer I'm going to start kind of adding into this particular category just so we have a little bit more depth um, as to how that's going to go or, like, it was ahead of its time in predicting certain things and has aged better um, than other movies. So I gave it an 8. Um just because I don't have anything um, knocking it, but I can't also like push it up the list either. So seven for that for almost the same reasons you are, but I guess I don't feel quite as strongly about it as you. I'd agree with okay, an Sarah, eight. With an eight. Mm-hmm. All right. So that'll put it at a seven point seven for overall uh on classicness with a roundup and uh rewatchability um i watched this again there are not a ton of movies that i rewatch over and over um or that i really feel compelled to or that were fun or entertaining so this is kind of my median scale where you know i didn't have a problem rewatching this it was okay it was still thrilling in certain spots but it's not something i'm going out to be uh, uh, revisit, but it's also not something that like I'm opposed to revisiting either. So I gave it a five, just the basic straight middle of the road. Four. I'd have to be in the right frame of mind. Understandable. I, I like this is a tougher subject because of you know the murders and other things that are going on in this. So, Sarah. I'm going to skew and go up and go with a seven um, just because of what I actually enjoy. I mean, I do really enjoy true crime and I, I go out of my way to watch, you know, the Ted Bundy documentaries and stuff like this. So, All right. It's going to be so, Mike Myers. I married a serial killer. No. Wasn't it I married an axe murderer? Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. You can't get also, any names of anything right today. Yes, I can, Henry. I don't even understand that reference, so okay. But uh, I'd have to look back through as to see um, some of our uh, audience scores, but I think this was probably one of our lowest uh, ones. It had a 77 for a 7.7 7, uh, overall score on this. So... Uh, just to recap, that was a 6.3 at Legacy, uh, 3.5 at Impact Significance, 5.8 for Novelty, 7.7 for Classicness, 
5.3 for rewatchability and 7.7 for audience score for a grand total of, if you're counting at home, 36.3. So that puts it ahead of The Help, but just behind Inglorious Bastards. So Sarah, you have now been on two of the podcasts that are the lowest on the list. How do you feel? Well, if you would ever actually watch some really great silent films with me, that would change, but you refuse. Because... We don't want to completely lose the audience this early on. Okay, um, if anybody who <laughs> out there loves the movie as a cult classic silent film, Metropolis, please write Tom and tell him what an idiot he's being for refusing to watch it. I haven't refused. I haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah. Let's put it this way. Since it was taken off of TCM. If we get one person who writes us with the idea of Metropolis, other than Sarah, or somebody (laughs) Sarah solicits to do it, (laughs) I would be shocked. Shocked. Like you're shocked to find gambling in this establishment? Yes, that was where I was going because, of course, that's one of the great lines of all time with for Claude Rains. So, anyway, yes. So, all right, um, that's going to at least cap off the regular portion of this episode uh, for this week, um, and uh, we're hoping that for next week. Uh, we already said earlier in the podcast that we were doing uh, Silence of the Lambs, but um, we uh, are hoping to have another guest star on for next week uh, to help us with that one. So um, before we cut off, you had something you wanted to uh, add in? Yes, we're uh, recording this on on June 24th, uh, 2020. Um, And I'm just going to do a shout out because he never really ever had any recognition or any remembrance other than his immediate family. But today would have been my dad's 80th birthday. And um, considering that he's the reason I'm named this after a movie actor and the fact that he was such a big cinema and movie guy, and really kind of installed that in me and ultimately is a trickle down to you. I just thought that as part of this cast or web uh, or this uh, podcast that we should at least recognize that. So uh, to that, I just make note of that because his name was Ronald Duncan. And, um, you know, this is going to be this is probably the most a notoriety he's gotten in his life, probably if more than uh, a dozen people watch this or listen to this. Um, so, and with that, I'll just close out and just beg everybody, please, please, if you smoke, stop. If you're not, if you don't, don't start. Uh, well said. Um, again, I, I think. You know, ultimately, this is somewhat of a testament to that legacy, and so um, it's fitting that you would add that in there. Um, so, 
Uh, all right. All things considered, as far as housekeeping, we have uh, Silence of the Lambs coming up, uh, then followed by E.T. Uh, we have not decided uh, a couple of the movies after that, but this is our 20th episode, which means our specialty episode for the 25th is coming up here in the next few weeks. We have yet to pick that one specifically, but uh, I am hoping to not only have a good one, but to also have a um, uh, another guest host uh, to help us celebrate our halfway point of the first year. So stay tuned for that. So as usual, I wish we could uh, talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Uh, please rate, subscribe, and review. We would really appreciate it. For um, every five-star review, it helps people find the podcast. Uh, you know, subscribing will keep new ones. Uh, usually, we do these every Wednesday evening, and I have them up usually on Wednesday night uh, late, uh, if not early Thursday morning for most of you. Um, and uh, so if you want to continue to receive regular episodes, um, and have this in your feed, uh, please subscribe. Uh, otherwise, uh, we'll see you next week for our talk of Silence of the Lambs. And if you are interested, stick around for a few minutes afterwards for our uh, bonus segment on unanswered questions from Zodiac to continue the conversation. Thanks, everybody, and have a great week. Okay, bonus segment time. So remaining questions, uh, maybe we'll evolve this segment. This is the first one we're really doing. Um, if we have um, open-ended stuff or um, things that we'd like to discuss, um, just for people who stick around so we can keep the podcast to a decent limit. But um, all right, top one on uh, the list of things that I have. So who do you think the Zodiac really is? Oh, hmm. I actually agree with their assessment. Um, I do think it is Alan. Um, the DNA evidence, <clears throat> that's kind of a weird thing because how can you pull DNA off? And I say this as an archaeologist who I know that we've pulled DNA out of soil that is a thousand years old. How can you pull DNA off an envelope that has been touched by, you know, how many people, um... In the last 33 years. how And how can you know that it's accurate? Well, that's leading into one of my other questions, but um, literally nobody in this movie is using basic uh, evidence protection or, like, gloves, like, ever. They're just handling things willy-nilly. The amount of people at the paper that touch stuff and, like, you know, people that had no handling of care of any of this now i guess this is way before csi but even so you'd think that there'd be somebody that would like don't touch anything don't do anything just leave it exactly as it is and walk away until somebody can secure a crime scene well you have to understand first of all this is mitochondrial dna okay so this is you know you're gonna have multiple strains of DNA that are, are going to be available. And then, um, you know, they're going to take, you know, and then trace the various things involved. Um, you know, and um, so I don't have a problem with that. As far as the killer, 
I think it was Ronald Reagan. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, leave me to be my... He finished being governor about the same time as the Zodiac. And then he started, he stopped about the time he decided to run for president. So makes about as much sense as anything. Okay, thank you for that one and taking it so seriously. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to posit a theory that uh, I think there were multiple people. Not that they were working together. But that the person who wrote the letters is different from the person who committed the first couple of murders. But how could he have the uh, exact things, though, that the cops had not released to the public? That That is one of the loopholes, because that's actually a common, you know, thought of somebody who um, listens to a lot of, like, true kind and everything else. Um, but how would that have, you know, been... Um, one of the other popular theories is that it was somebody different who committed the first um, four murders and um, somebody else um, was writing the later letters. Well, I think that the person who wrote the letters had the details uh, of the whole cab driver one and the clue, or at least not clue, but the, the evidence, because I think he did commit that specific murder, but that was only to basically give him credence for everything else that was going on, because that was the one murder that really wasn't like any of the others. Well, serial killers break pattern all the time. I mean, um, some of them have no pattern at all. Should we look no further than the confession killer? I mean, he's Killers also take credit for things that they never did constantly, but um, they break patterns. They skew from their their norm, and um, the the idea that some police present in this that the Zodiac hated women and so he was specifically attacking women. Well, he, because he left two men alive, he turned around when he heard Mike moaning and shot him twice more. He didn't mean to leave him uh, alive. It was purely by chance and luck that he survived. Uh, And that shows me, you know, somebody who's a bit of an amateur. So it's somebody who could break pattern, who just wants the notoriety, who wants, you know, the fame that's involved in this. They're not in it for actually having the motives of, like, any uh, the most... like, controlled serial killers, I think he's more of an uncontrolled murderer. He he thrives off of the, uh, the attack, the fear that he induces in society. I don't know. I, I just... I, I, I have a hard time reckoning that with the inconclusiveness of everything else and um, the hard evidence pointing in one way or the other that there aren't the possibility of there being multiple people in parts of this and that there, um, we have an amalgamation that we've given too much because one person decided to try and take credit. So just well, my thought. But I, I also want to point out, though, that the t- methods that they were using in the 70s to rule people out, such as handwriting analysis and all of that, is so skewed 
that in most courts now, they won't even accept it as, you know, supportive evidence. Because so many people have con been convicted on handwriting analysis that is just absolute bullcrap. All right. So next question. Um, and this is one where I just I simply didn't do enough or any particular research. But was Robert Graysmith really involved with anything past the writing of his book? Like, I think his book came out in the early to mid 80s and um, maybe even a little bit after that. Um, and, uh, you know. We we don't really have anything further past that. I mean, I guess he was maybe not a consultant, but um, part of the original planning of this movie. So I I just would be curious what his involvement or his further uh, study would be. I know he did write, um, because the only reason he met David Fincher to begin with, and you'll love this, Dad, because um, it, it ties into something that uh, you ha or you know very well and constantly tell people about, but he wrote the book that became Autofocus. Yes. So, so, so he Graysmith wrote Autofocus? He wrote the book that became Autofocus. Ah, okay. So he That's, met Fincher yeah. at, the, at the screening or the original uh, premiere of Autofocus. Yeah. Which is a really, I mean, somebody grew up watching Hogan's Heroes and loved that show. Um, and then watch this and see what, you know, Robert Crane became. Um, wow. It was one of those films after I watched it, I wanted to take a shower. So, so uh, my final question is this just a different version of JFK, the movie? I mean, that's the only... I keep thinking about that when I, I'm thinking about this movie. It's the only other major unsolved case movie that we have. And they're trying to posit theories and recreate stuff and go back and um, try and put together all these pieces. And I guess the, the similarities... Um, kind of bore out. Uh, ultimately, they had a trial and some other pieces to the end of that movie that are different, but um, it still reminds me a lot of, of the premise and carry out of that movie. I, uh, I, I Sarah made the comment that this is the great unsolved mystery, and my immediate thought was, is, no, it's not. It's the JFK assassination. Um, so to that extent, yeah, yes and no, it's not quite as sensationalized as, as JFK, but pretty darn close. All right. Well, that's what I had for my questions. I don't know if either of you had any quick ones, but that's probably enough for, uh, a first try at a extra bonus segment. So, um, thanks again everybody for listening to the episode please rate subscribe review